Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast. And as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. She was brave and she was a daddy's girl. She was really close to her dad. Welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. I want to take a moment to acknowledge the First Nation land that today's episode takes place on. I want to acknowledge and give thanks to the lands surrounding the island lakes and the bounty that those lands provide to the Anishi Aniwag that inhabit it. A thank you to the chiefs who guide with the seven sacred teachings, love, respect, courage, honesty, wisdom, humility, and truth. Acknowledgement and respect to the adhesion to Treaty 5 and all its signatories. My heart and condolences go out to all the people of Garden Hill for the loss of one of their sisters. Today's case takes place on the Garden Hill First Nation Reserve out in Manitoba. It's south of Gillum, and Gillum is a place that I mentioned in the Hunt for the Wild case of uh, China Deese and Lucas Fowler. It's extremely remote. It's only accessible by plane. There's about 4,500 residents there, and they are what is called Oji Cree. They're on the north shore of the island lake. They have two First Nation constables, and then they use the services of the RCMP on the Stevenson Island Detachment. This is the murder of Teresa Cassandra Robinson. Teresa was born and raised on 
on the Garden Hill Reservation, the youngest of six. She had four brothers and one sister. She was a shy girl, but described by her family as brave and cheerful. And in all the photos that I saw of her, she was smiling very brightly. I think that she was one of those kids that really comes to life around people that she feels very comfortable with. Um, She was real cutie. She had a mane of really thick, wavy, dark hair, and she loved to draw and to be outdoors. Traditional First Nation child rearing believes strongly in that a village raises a child. So extended family members and elders in the community play a very strong role in the raising of children. So although Teresa lived primarily with her dad, John Robinson, she spent a lot of time with extended family who lived on Garden Hill, aunts, uncles, cousins, as well as friends and family. So it wasn't unusual that 11-year-old Teresa would spend a night at her dad's, maybe another night at her aunt's, and the next maybe at a family friend's house. It's an extremely isolated community, and everybody knows everybody, so you could have peace knowing someone was watching your child at any given time. Her mother, Sandra, had recently moved to Red Sucker Lake, about 78 kilometers from Garden Hill. Family is everything to First Nations people, and Teresa had recently traveled to Winnipeg to spend some time with her cousins. On May 7, 2015, which was a Thursday, Teresa's dad hadn't seen her since Tuesday and wanted to check in with her, see how school's going, that kind of thing. As he started sort of asking around about her, he started to get a little bit concerned. And so he actually called the school and was then informed that she hadn't actually been there since since that Tuesday. She had last been seen by anyone that he was able to get information from leaving a birthday party at one of her friend's houses at around 9 p.m. on that Tuesday, May 5th. So a community search was started, and when they weren't able to locate her, the RCMP was notified of her disappearance on May 8th. Um, Now, there was some side-eye in the news about this, and, and even one of the chiefs sort of raised a concern as to why the RCMP weren't called in sooner, but... With a community that's as close-knit as Garden Hill, I don't think that your first thought would be anything dark and terrible. Plus, as I'm going to get to a little bit later, there was probably a little bit of distrust of the RCMP, um, that the RCMP would have had their best interests at heart. So I think they would have been a little reluctant to call. So although the RCMP was notified that uh, she was missing and that there was a community search underway. There wasn't an official organized search until after the 11th, uh, which was the Monday morning. Sadly, on that afternoon, Susan Harper, who was a community member, was walking with her husband and asking around about Teresa. One of Teresa's friends said that she had found Teresa's bracelet on the road that was leading towards the bus shelter. Susan knew the bracelet as soon as she saw it because it had been painted with yellow nail polish, which she saw uh, Teresa wearing all the time. Susan actually stumbles her words of what she saw. She said, quote, I suddenly saw what was missing, what I thought was her. In the woods, not that far from the birthday party that she had attended, but in the opposite direction of her home, Teresa's lower body was found. 
and the remains of her skull about 30 meters away from that. By the state of her body, the assumption had been that she had been mauled by either a bear or a wolf, which was a little strange because that had never happened before, but it is a very heavily wooded area, very remote, so there is definitely predatory animals in the area. Unfortunately, and with great sadness, uh, we're here to discuss the death of a young child, who we believe to be Teresa Cassandra Robinson. She was merely 11 years old, and her life was cut tragically short. Our hearts go out to Teresa's family and the entire community of Garden Hill First Nation. What they are going through at this time is unimaginable, and they have our sincerest condolences. Finding out what happened to Teresa is our first priority. Numerous officers from Island Lake Detachment, as well as investigators from the D Division Manitoba Serious Crimes Unit, along with Major Crimes and our Forensic Identification Section, have been investigating Teresa's death since May 11th. Our team of investigators are in the community now. I know there is much discussion about how Teresa died. As investigators, we have to deal with the facts, and these facts are as follows. At this standpoint, we do not have a confirmed cause of death. An autopsy is being performed today that may provide insight into the cause of death. We're speaking to numerous people within the community of Garden Hill as part of our investigation. And our teams have received the utmost in cooperation from the community, including the First Nation leadership. While the nature of our role in law enforcement is that we do deal with tragic circumstances, there's nothing that can prepare us emotionally in investigating the death of a child. We have experienced and professional investigators who are working tirelessly to try and find some answers for the family, for the community, and for Teresa herself. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. RCMP aren't so quick to make assumptions and do not rule out a more sinister explanation for her death. But the media and the community just kind of ran with the bear explanation. And, and I totally understand that. I think it's it's easier to think it was a bear than a person since, since it is such a tight-knit community to explore that it could have been the work of a person, particularly one of their own, would have been extremely scary. So an autopsy was done on... Um, the remains that they had found and there was evidence of sexual assault Um, now there was never any confirmation on the cause of death but the animal activity was deemed to be post-mortem right away there were rumors about who it could have been and two names got thrown 
around, which we can't say those names because they were just accusations. The community at that time was just thrown into an absolute nightmare. Children were terrified terrified to be out of sight of their parents. There was a 10.30 curfew that came into effect. But the worst part, I think the most traumatizing part, was that the search continued for two more weeks for whatever else they could find of Teresa. And not just for the investigation, but for the family. The burial process and the body are really important parts of the healing process for Cree people. Um, They try to take care of their own dead, washing the body and holding a wake that can last three or four days. There's a lot of spirituality around death and the circle of life and being returned to Mother Earth. And the returning of the body to Mother Earth is important, so it was really important for the family to have as much of Teresa that they possibly could. And Teresa would have turned 12 on May 14th. So instead of celebrating with her, her dad, John, literally spent that day searching in the underbrush and under rocks and on the trails for pieces of his daughter. The elementary school had to pause classes and they used the lunchroom to feed all the searchers, um, some of whom actually came in by boat from surrounding communities. The local bus shelter there was used um, to post maps of the area to help in the search and the RCMP settled into like a makeshift office space in the Child and Family Services building. Teresa's brother and sister wore pieces of Teresa's clothing that they tore into like strips to tie around their wrists in remembrance and also joined in the search. One of her brothers uh, actually found out about Teresa's death on the news. In preparation for the funeral, family and friends gathered for um, two day, two full days at a wake service um, to support the family um, as they prepared as best they could for her funeral. Um, her grandparents and some of the elders sat near Teresa's casket um, saying prayers for strength and healing. Teresa's aunt, Michelle Robinson, says she'll be missed so much. She was a loving and kind person. And uh, the, the chief of the Garden Hill First Nations, his name's, uh, well, his name's Arnold Fleet. Everybody calls him Dino. So Dino Fleet said, it's hard to imagine what's been happening and what we're going to face. We've still got some small pieces that are missing that we want to recover. And once we put that to rest, the community will be a lot happier. Even if we don't find all remains, we know we did the best we could. So an RCMP homicide investigation was started, but there wasn't really a lot to go on. No one had come forward with any information um, past when she was last seen walking home from that birthday party. And because of the condition of her remains, there just really wasn't a lot of forensic evidence to go on. But they did have a DNA sample of semen that was taken from Teresa's body. So about nine months after Teresa had died, they um, they sort of exhausted everything that they could. And they, so they did something that was a little bit unusual. They had, so they had the DNA sample, but they had no match. Um, and they were almost positive due to the remoteness of Garden Hill that it had to be the work of somebody who was local. Uh, and I think the community felt the same way as did Sandra and John, who found um, it really hard to know who to trust anymore. 
So what the RCMP did is they asked the entire population of the reservation that were men between the ages of 15 and 66 to voluntarily provide a DNA sample. So that was been a pool of about 2,000 people. It was the largest DNA sweep ever performed in the country. Uh, and to be honest, the goal wasn't actually thinking that they were going to get a match, but more that they could sort of hone in on the people that had refused. Now, legally, if you do refuse, that's fine. You have the right to refuse. Um, it will make you look suspicious, but they can also then legally get DNA from anything that you might dispose of, cigarette butts, coffee cups, etc. So there's really no point in refusing, um, especially if you did nothing wrong. When you provide a sample, you have to sign a form and you have to be given the right to refuse and to speak with a lawyer first. And um, the police also have to dispose of the sample afterwards like because it can only be used in that one single investigation. They can't hold on to the sample and then try to match it to other cold cases. RCMP made the statement, There is someone out there that we believe is responsible for Teresa Robinson's death, and our investigators, as well as the community and the family, will do absolutely anything that is legal to identify and prosecute that person. Our investigators have spent tens of thousands of hours on this case, and not a single day has passed where it hasn't been worked on, thought of, toiled over. So during the sweep, Sandra Robinson was actually interviewed for APTN at National News and agreed that she believed it was somebody in the community. Band leaders like Councillor Larry Beardy supported the DNA gathering and encouraged everyone to come in for testing because they really just wanted justice for Teresa. Um, they did the tests in batches and most of the men came forward voluntarily. Um, in like, in fact, they all came in of their own accord, um, really didn't have an issue with it. Sandra wished that the person would just come out and confess and get it over with, but nobody did. Now, thankfully, the RCMP chose to go from ages 15 to 66, because a month later, a 15-year-old boy was arrested and charged without any fuss on March 17th, 2016. Teresa was only 11 years old, on her way home from a birthday party, when she disappeared. Tragically, her remains were found in a wooded area a short time later. Over the past 10 months, RCMP homicide investigators and many, many other units inside our organization have been working tirelessly to find the person responsible for this terrible crime. Today, I can confirm that a charge of first-degree murder has been laid against a 15-year-old youth from Garden Hill First Nation. The efforts of the community of Garden Hill and those who assisted to us were tremendous. This started right with a search for Teresa when she went missing uh, and until she was found. It then followed with subsequent searches. There were hundreds of people volunteered that assisted in this effort. This included members of Garden Hill First Nation, the surrounding First Nation communities, surrounding communities, and as I understand, folks from as far away as Ontario came to assist in the searches to help the community, help the family, and ultimately help us in our investigation. Sandra said, I knew this would come someday, but I didn't know it would feel like this. It really hurts. I didn't think someone that young would do that. It was anger at first, and now, and, and now there's, there has been fear almost a year in Garden Hill. People were 
there were a few kids. They, they, we had no idea what was going on if uh, this person was still out there. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a big relief at the same time in the community for, for people that have little children, for the, for the parents, for the grandparents. So there was a lot of mixed emotions. Although they were happy to have Teresa's murderer behind bars, there were also some feelings about the young boy um, that had been arrested. And Sheila North Wilson, who is Grand Chief of Kiwantanawi, Okimakanak, said, It's unfortunate that it's turned out this way for him, but he is a young man and we have to support the family in their healing process as well, because they are going through a tremendous time right now. This speaks to a larger issue in our communities across the North, especially in MKO territory, that our young people are in crisis, they are in despair. They need hope, they need opportunities, they need resources, and I think it's upon all of us to make sure that they get what they need to find happiness and success in their lives. So this boy, who cannot be named um, because he's a youth, was questioned when the DNA sample was matched, and he had voluntarily given the sample, and then when he was questioned, he confessed to killing killing her while sexually assaulting her. No other details are known, but I think we kind of get the picture. Uh, her body was intact after he killed her, but of course wildlife caused the dismemberment that happened. He pled guilty in February of 2018 to first-degree murder, but as a youth. Uh, Justice Chris Martin said to him, There was no humanity at play whatsoever in what happened here. You didn't treat her like a person, you treated her like a thing. He found that his any remorse that he had was what he considered shallow and stunningly cruel. The maximum sentence the judge was able to give was six years in prison with the credit for the two years that he had already been serving while awaiting the trial, uh, and then court supervision for another four years after his release. Crown Prosecutor Chris um, Vanderhoof said that they had decided on that plea bargain. Although this offense, so he said, quote, although this offense is beyond horrific, we believe the sentence is acceptable in order for there to be a modicum of justice, end quote. Um, there were no victim impact statements read. The family just found it too difficult to put it into words, their loss. Um, so why such a light sentence, you ask? Well, um, for one thing, he's a youth. It was the maximum sentence that they were able to give. And defense lawyer Catherine Dowell said that the, this teen had his own challenges. He had struggled to learn English. Um, of course, his language is OG Cree. He was bullied for his weight, struggled in school. Uh, he had been orphaned, actually, at a young age and raised by his grandmother. Uh, but he also had no history of drug or alcohol abuse, no mental illness. He didn't have any prior criminal record. Uh, he did apologize to the family at the sentencing hearing, saying, I'd just like to say sorry to Teresa Robinson's family for putting them through this. Uh, his family continues to remain supportive of him and hopes that he will now get the help and services that he needs. However, Justice Martin wondered how remorseful he could he could actually be, um, seeing that he actually never came forward and he, quote, essentially hid in plain sight. His, of course, his family um, and anyone that knew him was completely shocked at uh, what he had done and considered it extremely out of character. Uh, and he did weep openly during most of all the proceedings. 
Now, there is something that I want to sort of talk about in regards to this case. It's kind of a bonus for you today. You get a little bit of a history lesson with today's case, but but don't turn off just because it's history. I'm going to try and make it a little bit interesting. As many of you know that are Canadian, we have a bit of an issue with uh, missing, murdered, and Indigenous people here. It is actually a named phenomena. We actually call it the MMIWG. First Nation victimization comes up a lot in my research, and I've, I've kind of been shying away from some of it. Um, one, because so many of the cases are unsolved, or they're just, you know, really isn't a lot of information to go on, because they those cases do not get the same media coverage that, um, you know, say somebody like Jasmine Lovett and those kinds of cases get. But the other reason is that I've actually been... I don't know, afraid of saying something wrong or not giving it the correct respect. And I and I realize that that's just kind of dumb. Um, so instead, lately I've been trying to educate myself so that I can feel more comfortable highlighting these kinds of cases. Um, now I've only started my education, so you have to bear with me a little bit. If you are more educated in Indigenous culture and issues than I am. Um, but I also have a lot of listeners in other countries that might not understand our unique and wonderful yet still somewhat troubled nation and our people and how we are unique in that regard. So that's why you're going to get a little bit of a history lesson today. And also because I kind of went down this rabbit hole while I was reaching researching, so I kind of have to drag you down the rabbit hole with me. Um, originally, I did not want to do this case for the same reason that I was reluctant to do the John Ostomus case, because it is a case of lateral violence, which statistically most cases are. When it comes to murder, race is a lateral variable. Statistically, keep, people kill people within their own race. Uh, and again, I'm just talking about statistical analysis here. I, I totally realize that there are anomalies and that there are a lot of case, cases of, say, a Caucasian killing um, somebody who's Colombian or whatever. And um, we are just talking about murder here, not genocides, war crimes. Um, God knows us white folks have done enough of our share of killing of other races. But in Canada, there is this one group of people for which the statistics do not apply. And that is our Indigenous people, particularly our Indigenous women. Indigenous people are targeted by all races and are the most likely to be murdered out of any other group. I honestly don't think that even if you were in an L.A. gang, um, that that would put you as in as much risk of being murdered as just being born Indigenous in this country, particularly being born as an Indigenous woman in this country. Um, I don't have any particular statistics on that. It's just my beliefs. Um, but because this is a case of lateral violence, I, di I didn't want you to think that by doing that and, fo and not focusing on cases where there's more general violence towards Indigenous women that I was ignoring the issue. Um, I'm, in fact, actually, I'm very interested in the issue. Um, so as part of my education, I've discovered a bit of insight that I think is important to share. Um, and again, particularly for those of you that are not listening from Canada and maybe not aware of um, the issue with Indigenous people that we have here. I believe that 
most of you know that there are certain lifestyle choices that can make you more vulnerable to violent crime. Working in the sex trade, substance abuse, lower educations, poverty, etc. And in Canada, people from First Nation communities are statistically far more likely to have at least one of those issues in their lives. And again, I'm talking about statistics. Of course, it doesn't apply to every Indigenous person. And I'm extremely grateful for that. And I think that most of us also know that trauma, particularly early childhood trauma, leads to things like working in the sex trade, abusing substances, dropping out of school, living in poverty, etc. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard and, and maybe you've even kind of heard from someone or maybe you've even kind of wondered yourself, you know, that yes, um, we did take over um, the land from indigenous people and all that, but it's been like a hundred years now. Why do we still have this issue? Um, so I'm going to tell you why we have this issue. And like I said, I'm going to promise to try and make it as interesting as possible. Francis Walker was appointed commissioner of Indian affairs in 1897. Now this was in the U S which I realize is not in Canada. Um, but we, as Canadians, we actually adopted a he, a, the majority of um, American ideas with regards to colonialism, particularly with regards to the First Nations people. So that's why his appointment at, to Indian Affairs is actually important to Canada. Um, he didn't really have any experience in Indian, in Indian Affairs, but that was what it was. Um, and of course, again, as most of you know, the First Nations people were already here when Canada was being uh, colonized, um, hence the modern term First Nations. So Francis posed what became known as the Indian question, because he noticed that the conflict that was happening between the settlers and the Aboriginal people was stemming from the fact that they had been completely uprooted from their ancestral lands, which were obviously quite fertile, rich with game, um, and then forced to live on land that really couldn't support them in the way that they were used to um, eating, feeding themselves and living, uh, but then told to adopt this European agriculture, like just, if you can't fish anymore, well then start farming, but they were not farmers, so it, they just didn't have the skill set to do that, and the land didn't really support good farming. Um, it's not that there's anything about Aboriginal people that would preclude them from farming, other than the fact that they just didn't know how to do that. It wasn't part of their ancestry. So they were unable to feed themselves that way, so they became dependent on the rations that were pro promised to them under these treaties with the U.S. and Canada. And of course, rations were often late, sometimes they got stolen. Um, and he noticed that another problem was that it was what he called illegal incursions by whites onto Indian territory. And to give Francis credit for his later work, which we'll get to, um, he said, the eagerness of the average American citizen of the territories for getting upon Indian lands amounts to a passion. There is scarcely one of the 92 reservations at present established on which white men have not effected a lodgment Many swarm with squatters who hold their place by intimidating the rightful owners. In skirmishes between whites and Indians, 
whites often commit atrocities rivaling those of the savages. Now, sorry, that is a quote. I told you he's not really a great guy, but at least he was kind of on the side of the First Nations people um, at that time. Now, he also noticed that this, this conflict between the settlers and the Aboriginal people had really escalated after 1869 when the Transcontinental Railroad was finished and he figured this it's just going to get worse because they're going to continue the railroads which are going to, of course going to cut right through these reservations that had already been promised to the First Nations people. So the Indian question he posed had two parts. It is, what shall be done with the Indian as an obstacle to the national progress and what shall be done with him when and so far as he ceases to oppose or obstruct the extensions of railways and settlements? And he felt like the answer was either seclusion or citizenship. The principle of secluding Indians from whites for the good of both races is established by overwhelmingly predominance of authority. He So he advocated for um, basically secluding, confining um, First Nations people onto these reservations, forcing them to farm or otherwise work until they were assimilated into the U.S. and Canadian economies. But he did also say that we, the the U.S. and Canadian settlers, should make good on their treaty obligations because he felt doing so was actually cheaper than trying to go to war with them. He says, expensive as is the Indian service at as at present conducted in the interest of peace, it costs far less than fighting. Okay. So as a result of all this thinking, because, of course, Canada is also building railroads, road cities, and, and encroaching on First Nations lands, they, in Canada, we decided to build residential schools. So the thinking was, if we round up all the children on the reservations, whether they wanted to be rounded up or not, uh, hint, most of them didn't, uh, we can teach them how to speak English and to farm and to basically become like white folks. And then they can go back to their parents and elders and teach them and voila, everybody's good. Only it wasn't good. It was very, very bad because most of the schools were run by the Catholic Church and abuse was rampant. Now, do not call me out for going after the Catholic Church on that. There was so much racism against aboriginal people back then that anyone running those places except maybe jesus himself probably would have abused the children and the the abuse was physical emotional verbal sexual um they were also kind of experimented on in a way like the theory was that they wanted to test was that if you keep children malnourished uh they're going to be better behaved which turns out it doesn't work it just malnourishes the children and makes them very sick uh, so as a result many children died and then they were just sort of dumped unceremoniously into unmarked graves um, they were not allowed to use their birth names and were given instead christian names parents couldn't leave the reserves to come and visit them so their entire culture was 
really lost in this process and it's quite remarkable that um, they've been able to save as much of their their culture um, and some of their um, their rituals and that as they have um, but of course the worst part is that that legacy becomes trauma and what does trauma do to societal statistics statistics it creates an entire community of people that are statistically more likely to abuse substances abuse each other and become part of the sex trade all of that um and of course all of that creates their own traumas for the generations after so my point is the fact that a first nation person victimizes another first nation person is not just a case of lateral violence for statistics like it would be um you know for a white person or w killing another white person or whatever um it is an example of how the first step to reconciliation is not to apologize for what you didn't do or, you know, some, a process that your ancestors started um, that you can't really take full responsibility for. The first step is recognizing and validating that a lot of healing of past trauma has to happen to entire communities of people and people that should matter very, very much to us. And with all of that, that was the murder of Teresa Cassandra Robinson. I sincerely hope you will join me again next week for another case. Thank you so much for listening. 